So grab your notes out, grab your pens out. As you're doing that, I wanna just remind you of the two words God gave us as a church. If you know them, can you say them out loud with me, everybody? Come on. Hope and healing. Hope for you tomorrow and healing from your yesterday. It's all found in a relationship with Jesus Christ. And those just aren't words on a wall in our lobby. They are really what God can do. And they become personal. I want them to become personal for you. Not just something we say, but I want you to experience the hope and healing of Jesus Christ. And we started a series a couple weeks ago through the book of 2 Timothy. And let me just tell you, the challenge of a preacher is to try and cram one entire chapter into one sermon. Like that's a, I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but the last couple of weeks it's been like a, a fire hydrant of just information because there's probably a dozen sermons in each chapter, if not more. And uh, so I'm up for the challenge. We thought, let's just give everybody an overview. And it's kind of cool to read the chapter that we're going to go in. So this week, read 2 Timothy chapter 4. And then next Sunday, we'll talk about 2 Timothy chapter 4. You'll already be aware of what's, what's coming and hopefully gets a greater deposit inside of you. <clears throat> Paul is writing, and he says this, our theme verse, 2 Timothy 1.6. Turn with me in your notes or on the screen. He says this, for this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God that's inside of you. I want you just to remember, there's a gift that God's given you. You may not know it yet. You may not be aware of it. But that does not negate the fact that there's a gift God has given each and every one of you. And if it's been lying dormant, I'm praying through this series, God would rekindle that fire and we fan that flame in Jesus' name. Amen, everybody. Come on, turn and tell somebody the sermon title today. Look at them and tell them, I'm the real deal. I'm the real deal. Have you ever bought something before that you thought was the real thing and it only looked like the real thing? I was 18 years old, went to New York City for the first time, walking the streets of New York City, and I bought a Rolex watch for $10. It said Rolex, it looked like a Rolex. But something about the way that it broke before I made it back to California led me to believe it might not be the real thing. How many know that in almost any major city, you're going to find people selling knockoffs and counterfeits on the side streets? And a counterfeit is this. It looks like the real thing, but it's not the real thing. A while ago, my, my daughters and I were going down the major city street, and they saw some people selling some counterfeits on the side street. And it, they drew them in at first, and I leaned over to them, and I said, hey, those are fakes. And the guy selling them didn't like me too much, but I'm their dad. Of course I'm going to warn them about a counterfeit. Like, What kind of dad would I be if I didn't warn them? I'm like, hey, girls, listen, before you buy, check out those Rolexes over there. <laughs> you know, What kind of dad would I be, right? Of course I'm going to warn them about counter counterfeits. And it's with this same heart that we see a father of the faith in a dungeon. And he's passionately prescribing precaution from a prison cell to a spiritual son named Timothy. His name is Paul. The year is about 67 AD. He's in prison, not for some heinous crime, but for teaching Jesus. And about four years prior to this, persecution came about in the world against Christians, and many of them were imprisoned. Some of them even gave their lives for their faith in Jesus Christ. So Paul is here, and instead of complaining about 
his situation, he turns around and in this dungeon, and I showed you the video in chapter one a couple weeks ago, I was there in the place where he would have written this. It's just, it's more like a sewer than, a, than anything else. And there's a hole in the, in the ceiling where he would have been lowered and food would have been dropped. And if they want to kill the people, they simply let it fill up with water. I mean, it was a horrible environment. And from this deep, dark, damp dungeon, he writes to encourage somebody else. Perception is everything, everybody. Like what God is doing, he says, I'm willing to go through this if it's able to save some other people's lives. I'm willing to, and he's awaiting his execution. Next week we'll talk about how he died and what, what he suffered for the cause of Christ. But he's here and he's writing to a spiritual son named Timothy. Timothy is, and he's a young preacher. About 16 years, Paul poured his life into him. And about four years prior to this letter, he left him in a city called Ephesus, is where we get the book of Ephesians that's written to. And he left him there to pastor the church. So needless to say, Timothy's a little young. He's a little scared. I guess you can entitle this first and second timidity because he's intimidated. And Paul is writing to him to encourage him. Boy, fan the flame. There's a gift inside of you. Be strong in the grace that God's given you. God didn't give you a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and a sound mind. Come on, stir up the gift that's inside of you. You can do this, Timothy. So as we approach chapter three, it's with the heart of a father that Paul says, hey, listen, mark this. There will be terrible times in the last days. I pause for a moment because that's not the most encouraging verse. But we have to ask ourselves a couple questions. Why is it terrible? What does terrible mean? Terrible is stressful. It's, it's perilous, one translation says. And he says it's happening in the last days. Well, the last days in the Bible refers to the days before Jesus comes back. So the final days here on earth. And you say, well, when did they start? The final days, the last days started when Jesus rose from the dead. So we've been in the last days for 2,000 years, but we've never been in last days like this day because there's no more biblical prophecy that needs to be fulfilled except for the fact, well, Jesus Christ is going to come back, and we don't know when, but the Bible, the last biblical prophecy that needed to be fulfilled was Israel becoming a nation. That happened in 1948. So why is he taking so long then to come back? Well, it's not really long in his mind because there's no time in heaven. He's not bound by calendars and clocks like we are. But here's a verse that explains why. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9 says, The Lord is patient with you. How many are thankful for that? <laughs> not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Like he didn't want anybody to, to, to go away from him and spend eternity away from him. He's like, I'm, I sent my son Jesus Christ so that didn't have to happen. By the way, hell is not a place where God sends people he's mad at. Hell is a place where people go to pay for their sins if they want to. My recommendation would be, don't pay for your own sins. Let Jesus pay. He's already paid. Let's just enjoy the eternal life that he came to offer. Like, it's because of his grace, his mercy, his patience, his long-suffering. He's waiting. How many are grateful that God waited long enough for you to come to know him? In the last days, there'll be terrible times, like stressful times. And, and then it goes on to really elaborate what that will look like. But before we get into that, write this down, everybody. I think Paul is encouraging Timothy. Choose who you run with wisely. Choose who you run with wisely. We reach out to everybody. You want to love everybody. Be kind to everybody. But the closest people in your life, I'm talking about the ones who have influence over your life, the people who are speaking into your life, they ought to be going the same way as you. 
Like, show me your friends and I'll show you who you're becoming. One man put it this way. Your friends determine the direction and quality of your life, period. Let me say that again. Your friends determine the direction and quality of your life, period. So as we think about who we're running with, look at this list that I'm getting ready to read and see if it doesn't sound like today. Because in chapter one, Paul comes along and says, hey, fan into flame the gift of God that's inside of you. Chapter three, now he's warning them about people that would try to come, things that would try to come and put out the flame. So there's a flame inside of you, but there's also some things that are trying to put the flame out. He says, in the last days, they will be lovers of themselves. Pause. Have we ever been in a more self-absorbed culture than right now? I mean, we suffer from the selfie syndrome. How many have ever seen somebody's Instagram page and it's nothing but pictures of them? Like every form of pig. It's duck-faced. Mm, it's look away at the camera. Mm, I'm not seeing. Oh, I didn't even notice you. I mean, it's just every, every picture you can think about is just them. That literally describes the culture of today. Uh, you can go on vacation and make a whole day out of people watching just taking selfies. How many like the people watch? Just like literally, there's a one girl. She was, she was walking across the street. And, and when we were away a couple weeks ago, we took one day off and we saw so many people taking selfies. And usually it was, it was the selfies and then it was the ladies with their man. And the man had to take up the pictures. And then the ladies, I saw several ladies getting angry with the, their man because it wasn't right angle. Like they take a picture. Mm. And then all of a sudden she go up and let me, let, you didn't even do it right. You got to hold the camera this way. You have to come a little closer. Guys are like, okay. Like literally one girl was walking across the street and her man was taking a picture, like a picture of it. She looked at it, didn't like it, went back across the street, walked back over for another picture. Like it's like, oh, I didn't even notice you were there. It's the selfie syndrome. What is, what is he talking about? It's, it's where life is all about me first. It's selfishness. And we all struggle with this to some degree. Come on, let's be honest. Like it's all in us to some degree. My wife and I, several years ago, were driving back up from LA and we stopped off at a fast food restaurant and pulled in the driveway and I ordered a cheeseburger, fries, and a drink. I turned to Diane, I said, would you like anything? To which she said, no. Let's just review. I asked Diana, would you like anything? She said, she said, no, we're all in agreement on that. Pull on the freeway, get my food. I start to eat my cheeseburger. She leans over and she says, can I have a bite? <laughs> See, now we have a problem <laughs> because I bought the cheeseburger. See, I, I would have, we just came from the drive-thru. I would have gladly bought you your entire meal. I asked you, would you like anything you said no. I didn't say, you said no. Now I have my cheeseburger. And there's only so many bites in a cheeseburger. So, so this cheeseburger's mine. The drink is mine. The fries are mine. Even the fries that spill out in the bottom of the back, those are mine too. Come on, does anybody know what I'm talking about? You have somebody in your life like that? I shared, I shared. I didn't like it. But I shared. My daughters, it's interesting because what kids pick up, my daughters, when they were young, about that same year, I said, hey, girls, we're going to Subway. And as soon as I said that, they began to yell out this line. I go, biggest. I go, biggest. And I, I was driving the, the van. I was like, what are you talking about? 
I said, well, Dad, when you take us to Subway, you normally get us a 12-inch sandwich, and you have a share. And when they cut it in half, they don't normally cut it evenly. <laughs> and so I was calling the biggest. <laughs> Train up a child. <laughs> so we all struggle with with selfishness to some degree, but he said this, like, it's in us. And he says, in the last days, society will move into a direction where it is all about themselves. It's a, it's a me-first mentality, and really, this is the root of all the other sins. Because you don't steal unless you're putting yourself first. You don't kill unless you're putting yourself first. You're not, all the other sins are, are kind of rooted in this me-first mentality. Then he goes on to say, they'll be lovers of money. And this is not like you can't have money. Money's evil. Money's not evil. It's an inanimate object. We all need money. The Bible says if you don't work, you don't eat. So it's good. You got a job. You, have, you pay bills. I understand all that. But he says people, will, like they're going to be lovers of it where they do anything for it. You honor money above God. You put your trust and hope instead of God. I'm telling you, the, the scare of the last days, even like the mark of the beast in the Bible, is not about like the threat of the beast or the antichrist, the threat is this. It's the fear of not being able to sell and buy. Like that's, that's, the, that's the issue. We've made this money a God in our life. Then he goes on, here's a list of things. We'll just read right through them. Boastful and proud. This is where we're bragging, so braggadocious. And, how, and why is it that our society is so quick to say, oh, I'm just so proud of myself. I did something, I'm so proud of myself. Be grateful and confident in who God made you to be. But be careful with that pride thing because pride is an ugly counterfeit. If you've ever seen a prideful person, you've seen an insecure person. The world teaches pride. God teaches humility. Remember, pride comes before a fall. Proud, they'll be puffed up. They'll be boastful, which leads to another one, abusive and blasphemers. Oh, pride leads us to, be, to believe that we're better than other people, that we're above other people, and pretty soon we begin to justify in our minds why it's okay to talk badly about other people, abuse other people, whether it's physical, emotional, uh, 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 verbal, where we become rude and insensitive and disrespectful, and then we begin to blaspheme against God. Because when you elevate yourself in your eyes so high to a certain degree, you no longer see a need for God. So we step back and begin to blaspheme. The world becomes self-centered, and you think the world revolves around me, myself, and I. Here's another one that you weren't expecting. Disobedient to parents. Have we ever had a generation where we see this more? When you put yourself first, watch this, pride comes in. When pride comes in, we become abusive in nature, and we become disrespectful. When you feel prideful, you no longer see the need for authority. Write this down in your notes, Romans chapter 13. Romans chapter 13 says that all authority has been given by God, like every authority is placed in place by God. Verse two says, whenever we rebel against authority, we're not even rebelling against the authority, we're rebelling against God himself. That's a crazy statement. That's a, that's a why, why would he do that? Listen, I'll tell you why. Because the devil loves rebellion. Matter of fact, 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 23, says that rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. And the original text, is as, is not there. Rebellion is witchcraft. 
We always think witchcraft like talking to sorcerers and playing Ouija board. The devil loves rebellion. No wonder he's been trying to systematically unravel authority. Because if you don't respect your parents, you won't respect the teacher. And if you don't respect the teacher, you won't respect the police. And if you don't respect the police, you won't respect the government. And if you don't respect the government, chances are you're not going to respect God. I understand, you may, you may, in your mind right now, you're saying, but they're not respectful. They don't deserve respect. The issue is not them. The issue is our relationship with God. This is tough, this is really tough because you don't even really have to give respect until you don't want to. I don't agree with politicians and everything that they stand for, but if they came in, I would stand up and greet them regardless of their position. Because I can look to, I can honor the position and, and, and over the person even. Like, I'm, like respect is such a big deal to God. Honor is such a big deal to God. And here we, we think like by rebelling against authority, parents or whatever authority you fill in the blank, we think that it's invigorating and empowering when really it's enslaving. Because the enemy gets a trap. It's a trap. It's a, it's a foothold in our life. The devil, if he can get you to disrespect your father on earth, he can get you to project that on your heavenly father. Your earthly father, your parents are the first authority. Like if you can ace that, you're gonna, be really, you're gonna do really well in life if you can just get that down. But the Bible is very clear that God is a heavenly father. So if the devil can get you to have a wrong view of your earthly father, if you think that he's absent, aloof, or abusive, now watch this, he can get you to project that on God to where you think God is absent, aloof, and abusive. It's, it's a whole dynamic of authority that God set in place. Here's another one. He says, in the last days, people will be ungrateful unappreciative, thankless. Like kids who are the, you'd agree with this, kids who are the most disobedient seem to be the most ungrateful kids. Just so rebellious. And they, we grow more and more unholy. Oh, that's not even a real word that we use today. How you feeling today? Unholy? I just don't feel it. It means that we're pushing ourselves away from God. It's ungodly. It's godless. Without love, unforgiving. How many people do you know who are stuck in life because they refuse to love and refuse to let go of the offense that's keeping them down? <clears throat> Slanderous. Talking about people. How many know anybody that talks about anybody else? You, I, you, I'm not the one to gossip, so you didn't hear this from me, but... Without self-control. This is living a life where whatever, anything goes. Brutal, cruel, not lovers of good. Like literally in our culture now, we call good evil and evil good. Treacherous, disloyal, unfaithful, backstabbing, rash. You're like I have one of those, I'm glad you're addressing it. No, it, rash is not thinking of consequences. It's, it's, it's reckless. Watch this, it's making hasty decisions without thinking it through. <clears throat> Conceited, self-absorbed, self-centered, vain, then he says this, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Okay, listen, we all struggle with this to some degree. Where we're willing to sacrifice for fleeting pleasures, but then we don't want to lay anything down to honor God. It's in us. It's, it's in all of us. This is not a pointing of finger. This is like, hey, guys, here's what the end days look like. Here's what our culture looks like. We have to be careful that we don't get sucked in and become like the culture where we're so sophisticated and we think uh, short-term instead of long-term goals. We look at this list, and many of us are thinking, Sean, that's, that's just the norm. Like that's, wait, the list we just read even though it was written 2,000 years ago, it sounds like we're reading the blog from today. 
Like, it's just normal. I know, that's the problem. This has become normal to the point where he says this, having a form of godliness, but they deny the power of God. This is, well, listen, this is where we look good on the outside, but it's actually counterfeit faith because God's not first. We're first. This is where we want Christianity without Christ. This is where we want spirituality without his spirit. This leads to an empty, dead religion, which leads to further and further frustration. I'm telling you, ladies and gentlemen, we have to be careful in the last days of counterfeit. Can I hear an amen? Because here's the idea. Let me give you a picture of this. I plugged in my phone to my charger. My charger's plugged into the outlet. I set my alarm, and I wanted to wake up at a certain time in the morning time. Morning time came, and my, I realized something. I overslept because my alarm never went off because my phone died. There's a little switch, a light switch, that's connected and controls this particular outlet that my wife the night before turned off. So although my phone looked like it was receiving power, it was actually powerless. Can I tell you, it is very possible to look good on the outside, to look like we have it all together, and that looks like we're connected and still be dying in church. Because this is not about external facades. This has everything to do with the depth of your relationship with the one who has the power to save and the power to heal and the power to forgive and the power of God. Come on, anybody thankful for the grace of Jesus? Come on, anybody thankful for his mercy, his, his new life that he came to bring? Like, that's the point where you understand you don't have to be stuck in your old life. God wants to raise you to a new life where you literally can know God personally, that you can find freedom, you can discover purpose, and you can make a difference. And we're to reach everybody. We're to love everybody. But the people closest to you that speak into your life ought to be people going the same way as you because your friends determine the direction and quality of your life, period. Paul actually says, hey, have nothing to do with them. Well, that's a big statement. And look at verse six. He says this, why? Because they're the kind who worm their way in to homes and gain control over gullible women who are loaded down with sins and they're swayed by all kinds of evil desires, always learning but never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so also these teachers oppose the truth. These are men of depraved minds who, as far as faith is concerned, are rejected. Never growing. They're around, but not really walking with God. And then they worm their way into people's lives and stir up dissension and stir up doubt. They come into people's homes who maybe are not strong in their faith yet. And he named a couple of them, Janus and Jambres. These are the magicians. If you go back to Moses' day when Moses was called to go set the slaves free, he says, listen, I'm going to perform some miracles through you, Moses, God said. And then all of a sudden, these magicians tried to be a counterfeit and try to oppose the truth. He says, listen, they're literally opposing the truth of God. With that being said, as we move on through the chapter, write this down. I believe it's time that we say, let's live a life intentionally pursuing Jesus. Like not accidental, not, not as Jesus is a salt and pepper of our, of our meal. Like, hey, let's add a little Jesus to our life. But let's, let's make this intentional. Matthew 6, says this, seek first. Somebody say first. first. You know what first means? First. It means first. Very good, class. It means not second. Not any, like put God first, seek him first. His righteousness, his rulership, and his reign. And then everything else falls into place. Here's what we do. We want everything else to fall into place. And when that's good, we turn to God. 
That's in our mind. Like, I'll, I'll put God first. I'll start going to church. I'll get right with him. I'm, no, no, no. God must be first. Because everybody ends up somewhere. Few people end up somewhere on purpose. At the end of your life, we'll all end up somewhere. I'm, I want to help you end up somewhere actually on purpose. <clears throat> Have you ever been driving with somebody before who thought they knew the way, but they didn't know the way? They're driving. Don't look at anybody. So you're like, mm, I'm sitting by it. They're driving down the road, and they think, I think it's over here. And you're like, it ain't over here. It's the third time we passed this building. It's not here. Like, stop and ask for some directions from somebody who knows, please. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 10 says this. You, however, after this big long list, he says, you, however, know all about my teaching. Watch this. My way of life, my purpose, my faith, my patience, my love, my endurance, persecutions, sufferings. What kind of things happened to me in Antioch? Not this Antioch. Biblical Antioch. Iconium, Lystra, like he was beaten and left for dead in Lystra for telling people about Jesus. He says, you remember all this. You were there. This is the town that Timothy grew up in, Lystra. And you know about the persecutions I endured, yet the Lord rescued me out of them all. How many are grateful that no matter what you're going through, you have a God who can rescue you out of anything? Is there anybody going through something right now? Anybody going through something emotionally, relationally, financially, spiritually? Well, be encouraged because we have a God who can rescue you out of any situation as long as he is first. Seek first the kingdom of God. Put him first, and everything else begins to fall in place. He goes on to say this. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Jesus Christ will be persecuted. Well, that's not very encouraging. While evildoers and impostors will go from bad to worse. Like, it gets worse? Deceiving and being deceived. You know the worst thing about deception? It's deceiving. We don't even know we're deceived when we're deceived. We think we're doing good. But we have to come back to our barometer, our, our measuring stick, the Bible, to see. Notice Paul's life. He said, my faith, my life, my message, my, my endurance, you know all this stuff. Notice how that's in direct contrast and the opposite of the, verse, the first list in verse 1 through 5. He said, that, you didn't learn that stuff from me. I've taught you another way, Timothy. I'm not putting us first. There's a dying to our old self. Luke, Luke chapter 9, verse 23. Then Jesus said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves. Well, that's different than the first part where we be lovers of ourselves, be selfish in nature. Jesus comes on the scene and says, no, 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 it's actually upside down. You want to follow me? Deny yourself and actually take up your cross and follow me daily. There's a denying of our old life. There's a denying of our old self. There's a, a renouncing of that. And Paul says, you know everything I've been through, Timothy. Suffering, being beaten, whipped with rods, whipped like Jesus was. All of this just so he says, so some people might be saved. Can I, can I just say this out loud? Maybe if we're feeling a little squeeze, maybe if God is asking us to lay down some things that are toxic in our lives, maybe if we're being laughed at by coworkers and classmates, can I just put this in perspective? What is all of that in comparison to what Paul went through, writing from a dungeon cell, writing saying, I'm willing to go through this if other people can come to know 
Jesus Christ. Come on. We ought to be willing to deny ourselves, take up our cross, follow Jesus, because Jesus is not a child abuser. What he has in front of you is greater than what's behind you, and he will take care of you. I believe with all of my heart. We got to get a fresh perspective of Jesus. Write this down. Let's fall in love with God's word again. Oh, let's fall in love with the Bible again. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14. But as for you, continue in what you've learned and have become convinced of, Timothy, because you know those from whom you have learned it. And how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation. Okay, pause right there. He says, you've known the Bible from, from when you were just a little boy. Can I say, let's teach our kids the Bible. How well do they know the Bible? They know every new song that comes out. How much scripture can they quote? Like, no wonder so, so many kids are so intimidated by people who step up, like verse one through five, because the selfie syndrome, when you don't know who you are in God, the selfie syndrome sucks you in. And it promises a life of fulfillment, but it's totally and completely empty. Do you know t teenagers today? They're living the, this is the most non-Christian generation in the history of America. Only four teenagers out of 100 believe in a biblical worldview. Something has got to change. Come on, let's start reading the Bible again. Let's teach our kids the Bible. Let's train them up to no, learn the Bible. This is all training so we can walk in the power of God. Verse 16, he says, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching. We need to be taught. Rebuking, that's uncomfortable. How many know sometimes you approach the Bible and you, you, you expect to just get a nice little rub on the back and you get a rebuke? That's not bad, it's good. He says correcting, it's useful for all these things. Correcting means that there's a right answer and then there's a wrong answer. And sometimes we need some correcting. You and go to your math test, and they say, what's two plus two? And you write down seven. And you tell the teacher, I just feel like it's seven. The teacher will look at you and say, well, I feel like failing you. <laughs> like we understand every other area of life, there is a right answer and there's a wrong answer. God comes along with the heart of a father. Like this is what parents do to their kids. They teach them, they, they rebuke them, they correct them, they train them. It's just what we do to help our kids succeed. Same thing with our heavenly father. He's coming in with the word of God. He wants, to, he wants to train you. He wants to get you ready. He wants to prepare you. He's gonna teach you, rebuke you, correct you, get you ready for something you can't handle right now. And I don't know if you've ever seen this before. Listen, write, if you have a Bible open, write a line from verse 16 and draw that up to verse 1 through 5. Because this verse 16 is the answer to our problem of verse 1 through 5. The list of, we don't know what to do, we're lovers of ourselves, we're, we're greedy, we're boastful, all of this stuff. He comes along and says, listen, this is an open book test. <laughs> I've given you my word and the remedy to sin is in our insecurity is the word of God. The way that you can fan into flame the gift that God's given you is by the word of God. The way that we can be strong in the grace he's given us is by the word of God. The way that you can know Jesus is by the word of God. John 1.1 says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. It was Jesus Christ, verse 14. That word came down and dwelt among us, became flesh, and showed us the way. Everything in verse, in verse 1 through 5 the Bible, if we read the Bible, the Bible teaches us what to do so we avoid the counterfeit.
The Bible says they'll be lovers of themselves. Well, Romans 12, 10 says, no, don't do that. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourself. People will be lovers of money. 1 Timothy 1, 8, Paul says, no, command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, to be generous and willing to share. People will be boastful and proud. James 4, 6 says, nope, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. James 4, 10 says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Okay, look at me, everybody. Our job is to humble ourselves. God's job is to lift us up. Okay, what? look at me, look at me. If you try and do God's job, he will do yours. Trust me, you don't want God humbling you. Let's humble ourselves. He's the one who lifts us up. He said, people will be abusive. Paul said, no, 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 no. Ephesians 4, 2, with all humility and gentleness and with patience, bearing with one another in love. People will be disobedience to their parents. Well, I should have heard some amens from parents. Oh, children, obey your parents in everything for this pleases the Lord. People will be ungrateful. First Thessalonians 5.18 says, No, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. People will be unholy. God says, No, because I'm holy, you shall also be holy. Next, people will be unforgiving. Ephesians 4.31 says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with any kind of malice. People will be unforgiving. Nope. Be kind and to one another and be tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ forgave your behind. People be slanderous. 1 Peter 2, 1. Nope. Put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. Put it away. People will be without self-control. 1 Peter 1, 8 says, be, hospi be hospitable. Be a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. People will not be lovers of good. Romans 12, 9 says, don't just pretend to love others. Really love them. Hate what is wrong and cling tightly to what is good. People will be treacherous. Are you, is, are you getting the point? 1 Corinthians 4.2 says, It is required of stewards that they be found faithful. People will be rash. Nope, the plans of the diligent lead surely to advantage, but everyone who is hasty, they will come to poverty. The next one, conceited. Paul, Paul, or James, the half-brother Jesus, says in James 4.6, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And that last one, people will be lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Jesus steps on the scene and says, no, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and all your strength. This is the first and greatest commandment. And I'm telling you, if you love your neighbor as yourself, you got basically everything I've taught you. Like we wouldn't even know any of this. The reason we drift and stray is because we've lost our anchor. We have 1,189 chapters, 66 books, written by 40 different authors over a course of 1,500 years, and yet they don't conflict with each other. They just reinforce each other and reinforce our need for Jesus and the salvation that only he can offer. No other book has gone through the scrutiny that the Bible has gone through. Some of the wisest people and in, in most brilliant minds have tried to pick apart the Bible and it's still come out unscathed. I'm telling you, ladies and gentlemen, go to the Museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C. Learn some things about the scripture. We have 5,000 ancient manuscripts from the Bible. That's more than any other history book in the world from eyewitness accounts of people. And then in 1947, the Dead Sea Scrolls were found. You say, what's that? There was a bunch of scribes who were scribing the Bible and tr making sure it's copied properly. They would give their lives for the sake of covering the Bible. If they messed up on a scroll, they'd rip it up and start again. So committed to the accuracy of Scripture. And these, this army came and killed everybody. Right before then, they rolled up all the scrolls, put them in clay pots, and hid them in caves, thinking we'll come back to them later, but they were all slaughtered. 
1947, thousands of years later, a couple thousand years later, some shepherd boys were throwing rocks in some caves, heard a clay pot shatter, walked in, found some scrolls. They didn't know what it was. They went down to a flea market and sold it for something cheap. The people who found it knew what it was, and they are the Dead Sea Scrolls. There was an excavation, which is the greatest archaeological biblical find in our, in our day, and it's, the, it's like the ancient manuscripts of Scripture. I've seen them. So they put all these up that are thousands of years old, two and 3,000-year-old Scripture, and they put that next to our translations today. Because you know how people are like, hey, it's been translated so many times. How do we know it's still accurate? It's exactly the same. You can put your confidence in the word of God. Men and women have given their life to protect the book. They, people have tried to ban the book. They tried to burn the book. They've killed people who read the book. But you can't stop the message of God. It's the word of God. He is the same yesterday, today, and he'll be the same forever. Come on. Some places, some places only have like a page or one book and they hold it so precious. It's their Bible. They memorize it. And yet here we are in our culture. We have more Bible than we know what to do with. We have more Bible translations, Bibles in hotel rooms, Bible websites, Bible apps. We have Bible apps that if you are too lazy to read, it'll read it for you. And yet we live in one of the most biblically illiterate generations ever in history. Why? Because this generation has an acquaintanceship with the Bible. Where we rely on Facebook quotes and one-liners for our devotion instead of digging down into the richness of the Word of God for yourself. Come on, let's come back and fall in love with the Bible, everybody. Even Josephus, Josephus, watch this, he's a secular historian, not even a Christian secular historian in the days of the Bible, and he attests to the validity of the events that take place in Scripture. I'm telling you, so many things, I don't even have time to get into it all. This, this is impossible. Why do we try to do a whole chapter on a Sunday? <laughs> Whose idea was this? Let me tell you this. Okay, this is cool. Um, many people have struggled with this. Our job, ladies and gentlemen, is not to argue with the Bible. It's to use it. Like some of the best, some of the people are like, I don't agree with the Bible. Well, what exactly? What exactly do you not agree with? Is it hard to believe? Is it, what is it? Because there's been no other book that has shaped culture like the Bible. And we come back to where we don't need to add to it. Some people like to mix it with mysticism and, 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 and superstition and astrology. Like let's mix it with all this stuff. Why are we doing this? The word of God is enough. Why would I talk to somebody who's trying to get answers from the stars when I could talk to the one who created the stars? Let's come back to the Bible, everybody. You can't get the right answers from the wrong places. Like, that's why you didn't cheat off the dumb kid in class. Even if he offered you, you're like, nah, I'm good. I think I'll just guess. You know, like, you can't get the right answers from the wrong places. No wonder so many people have a form of godliness but deny the power of God because we're ignoring the very answer sheet that God gave us to help us pass the test. It's the teaching. It's the rebuking. It's correcting. It's training in righteousness. We need this. One last thing. We're going a little longer than normal. One more thing. Okay, the Old Testament, that's the first part of your Bible, okay? 333 prophecies. How many? Three, three, three. 333 prophecies of the Messiah to come. Okay, 333 prophecies in the Old Testament. The Old Testament was finished, boom, 500 years before Jesus, B.C. B, not before common era, B.C. as in before Christ. 
they changed that. Anyway, so 500 years before Jesus was born, Old Testament's done, prophecies are done written. Now, if you take the Greek Septuagint, which is the Hebrew, trans, they, they take Hebrew, Old Testament, they rewrite it into Greek so Greeks can understand it. That's called the Septuagint. That was finished 250 years before Jesus. Okay, watch this. So either 500 or 250 years, whatever number you want to use, it doesn't matter. They were all finished before Jesus was ever even thought of. So Jesus comes on the scene and fulfills every single one. 333 prophecies. What are the odds of that taking place? What are the odds of the Bible being so accurate about one who is not even born yet? I'm talking specific detail, like what city he would be born in, how his friend would betray him, Judas, for 30 pieces of silver, how his hands and his feet would be pierced before the Romans ever even invented crucifixion. I'm telling you, all of these prophecies. Okay, what are the chances of this taking place? Peter Stoner, a great, great man, he wrote a book called Science Speaks. Great book to buy, Science Speaks. He calculated the chances of one man fulfilling just eight of these prophecies. Not 333, eight. Eight prophecies. He said the chances of one man fulfilling eight prophecies that were prophesied hundreds of years before he was ever even born, that would be one in 10 to the 17th power. Okay, let me tell you, that's, that's a lot of zeros. The odds, the chances, scientifically, that's the odds of one man fulfilling eight prophecies hundreds of years before. Okay, um, let me give you another picture because some of you can't calculate that high. I don't even know what that number is. I think it's a scrillion. I'm just kidding, that's not even a number. Here's, here, okay, listen. I'll give you a picture, you'll never forget this. Here's what the odds would be. It would be like me taking a silver dollar, putting a mark on it, and then filling up the state of Texas with silver dollars, the entire state, two feet deep. And then dropping that silver dollar from a helicopter, mixing all the silver dollars up, bringing you up, blindfolding you, and saying, go ahead and walk around Texas, from Dallas down to Houston, over to Austin, wherever you want to, and then at one point, you reach down and grab a silver dollar. The chances of you grabbing that silver dollar is one to the 10 to the 17th power. How impossible would that be? Unless you're God. Filling 48 of those 333 prophecies, only 48, it goes from 1 to 10 to the 17th power to 1 to 10 to the 157th power, and I don't even have time to get into it. Are you getting this? Like, like that's how impossible it would be. Charles Spurgeon said this, if I walked up on the Bible, I mean on a lion, I wouldn't feel the need to defend the lion, I just let it loose. Don't feel like you need to defend the Bible. Let's let it loose. Let it get in your heart. Let it get in your spirit. Let's change our lives. Number Last number. I don't know what number we're on. Let's get equipped for God to use us. Let's get equipped for God to use us. Here's our final verse. All scriptures, God breathed. It's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training, and righteousness. Watch this, watch this, watch this. So that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Okay, give me your heart for just 30 seconds. God has a plan for your life. There's a gift inside of you. He says, fan the flame, the gift that's inside of you. You've been sitting on your gift. It's time to discover the gift. Be strong in the grace God's given you. And we want to help you do this by our growth track. Our growth track starts today. Actually, in 10 o'clock today, our growth track, my wife and I will be over there. Maybe many of you have not yet gone through that or you didn't even plan to. Check the kids back in. You can go over there and re like. 
join the church and begin a four-week journey where we help you discover purpose. It's so simple, but it's purpose based on how you're created because God created you. And we want to help you. Take a four-week journey with us. You could do them out of order. Even if even you're like, man, I can't come next week. It's okay. Just start. And you could do them out of order. But then get on our dream team. Begin to serve because God has gifted you with something, everybody. And the, the body is not all healthy until all the body is working in their gifts. And I don't, want our, I don't want our body to be lacking. I want the church, the body of Christ, to be hitting on all cylinders so we can change the Bay Area and the globe with the love of Jesus. Amen, everybody. Come on, if you believe it, clap your hands and say a good amen. With your head's bowed and your eyes closed all over the room. Maybe you're here and you say, Sean, my life's not right with God, but I need it to be right here and right now. Listen, you're not alone. This is why we exist. We literally want you to know God. And if you say, how do I do that? I'd love to lead you in a commitment prayer that you could pray right in your seat. You know where you are with God. God knows. And how great to have a church where it's, it's, a, it's, it's encouraged that we just move one step closer, one step closer. If you're here and you say, Sean, count me in that prayer when you pray it. I want to give my life to Jesus. I want to renew my commitment to God. Maybe I've strayed a bit. I want you to just lift your hand on the count of three and say, count me in that prayer. Come on, one, two, three, lift it up. Yes, 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 awesome. Okay, pray this out with me. Say, Lord Jesus, thank you for loving me right where I am. Today I give my life to you. Forgive me from my sin. Wash me clean. I am yours. Be my Lord and Savior. Equip me for every good work. In Jesus' name, amen. Come on, let's clap our hands for everybody who prayed that prayer today.